Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Rosario Ingagiola, who is the founder and CEO of Basonic, the San Francisco-based decentralized financial market infrastructure company, whose mission is to eliminate counterparty credit and settlement risk in digital asset trading. To that end, Basonic has developed a cross-custodian net settlement service, which is looking to develop with a group of custodians via the CCNS Working Group. Rosario, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dominic. Appreciate it. I hope you'll forgive me being a bit pedantic here, but I'd like to uh, to understand exactly what is going on in this marketplace. What's the problem uh, which you're trying to solve uh, with Basonic in general, but with this CCNS service in particular? Now, if I could share with you what I think is going on in the marketplace, um, and I'd like you to give me a sense whether you think it's a reasonable description. So what I think is going on is this. You've got sophisticated uh, firms trading in the in the crypto markets, hedge funds, for example. Now they're looking to profit from staking their their cryptocurrencies, most obvious source of profit. You know, just validating transactions and so on. They're also looking to uh, to do a bit of yield farming, i.e., lending their cryptocurrencies, their DeFi tokens into these DeFi protocols. Um, but they're also looking to leverage their positions uh, in order to profit from swings uh, in these in these highly volatile markets. They're using stable coins uh, as kind of on-off ramps. Uh, they're also using stable coins as a convenient way to move between the various crypto exchanges and the blockchain uh, protocols, the automated market makers. They're also using those stable coins as a kind of refuge from, from volatility. It's a stable store of value, uh, but it's also another source of profit, of course, because they can then arbitrage uh, the stable coins that drift away from their currency peg. Indeed, that is uh, one of the mechanisms by which algorithmic stablecoins actually are meant to function. Now you've got so so, so you you as a, as a as a sophisticated hedge fund, you're active on multiple exchanges simultaneously. Uh, my understanding is that they're finding the post trade, the operational side of this, uh, very cumbersome. They have to be fully pre-funded uh, on every cryptocurrency and DeFi exchange where they're active in order to settle trades. And they have to settle those trades uh, directly onto the blockchain. And there's lots of different blockchains where these digital assets are, are issued uh, and traded, as well as different exchanges. And all of that is very slow. It's very expensive in terms of transactional gas fees. So uh, this explains why those professional trading firms are very interested in buying services that can reduce those operational costs and operational complexities. Is that the service that you're offering to sell to them. Is that a reasonable description of what's going on and the problem that you're looking to solve? Yeah, it's a, it's a good description of what's going on in the space for sure. There are all of those activities described, staking, you know, involvement in various DeFi uh, protocols um, are, are all obviously all happening by all of the different participants that are, that are trying to, uh, you know, get yield from the space. But a lot of the activity is, is trading related. So if you think about trading centric um, entities like a hedge fund, for example, if they're going to do anything at scale, they're going to need to access liquidity on multiple exchanges, and they're generally going to access liquidity with multiple market makers or OTC desks. And what a lot of people don't realize is that, obviously, as you pointed out, the exchange side is fully funded, which is problematic from a capital efficiency perspective um, and, and other perspectives, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but the but the market making and OTC desk side of things is actually done 
on 100% on unsecured bilateral credit lines. So what that means is you quite literally call up uh, any one of the big players in the space, uh, which now is basically all of the major TradFi market makers and other assets. They're now generally all making markets in the, in the digital asset space. And you literally establish an unsecured credit line. Neither side posts any collateral anywhere. Um, and you're doing that across a range of those participants in order to really achieve uh, sort of a, a, a nice aggregation of global liquidity that you can then execute trading strategies on at scale. And so the problem that Pasonic is solving is not just the capital efficiency and the operational uh, side of that, but it really is around the counterparty credit and settlement risk side of it. Because if you think about um, how you just, you have to kind of look at the, the different counterparties sort of uh, independently, right? So if you think about exchanges, for example, the issue that you have there from a counterparty perspective is that as was recently acknowledged by Coinbase and pointed out by Gensler, uh, assets that you put on the exchange are quite literally on the balance sheet of the exchange, which is fine until something goes wrong. And I think what we've seen in the light of sort of Three Arrows Capital um, and some of the fallout from that, you have exchanges like CoinFlex, for example, that lost uh, significant, nearly $100 million of client assets. The way those client assets were lost is because these exchanges are, are generally speaking, giving out unsecured credit lines to various market participants that they think uh, are a good credit risk. And so when those market participants fail because of something like a Three Arrows Capital event, uh, and they don't show up with the, the amount they owe to settle, um, you, you, you basically end up having losses that if the exchange doesn't have the capital to, to themselves cover that loss, it gets mutualized against client assets that are on the balance sheet of the exchange. And so really, if you think about that, just at, at any level, if you're, if you're coming from the TradFi side of things, the notion of putting assets on a retail exchange in the crypto space and having your assets on the balance sheet, or put another way, having your clients' assets, your investors that are trusting you as a fiduciary, putting those assets on the balance sheet of a retail crypto exchange is a, is a bit of a, is not really fit for purpose, really, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, the other issue that you have is uh, on the market maker side, those unsecured bilateral credit lines, you're, you're quite literally on, you know, on behalf of your clients, uh, if you're a fiduciary, taking those direct credit risks to your downstream counterparties. And then the bigger issue, um, uh, I don't know if it's a bigger issue, it's probably the, it's probably the lesser of the two evils, is you then have a settlement uh, problem across all of these parties. There is nothing that nets the transactions that you're doing between the exchanges and the market makers and OTC desks, let alone other buy side counterparties that you might want to interact with. Um, in a way where you have capital efficiency. So for example, to make it very concrete, if you put an asset, if you have asset, if you trade on an exchange, you go long on an exchange, you buy Bitcoin, you sell that Bitcoin to a market maker, you now have a position that you have to net settle with the market maker at the end of the day, potentially multiple times intraday, depending on your PL. And you have a position that's still open on the exchange that you have to somehow neutralize. There's nothing that is cross-margining that. There's nothing that is multilaterally netting that. And so on Basonic, you not only have uh, a mechanism, which I'm sure we'll get into around eliminating the risk by not having to physically put your assets on the exchange and, and eliminate the risk of, of market makers by not having to actually have a bilateral credit line or bilateral settlement where somebody has to go first on the settlement, meaning you send them dollars and hope they send you Bitcoin uh, in return. 
those problems all go away through what we refer to as atomic exchange. And, and then ultimately um, you get all the capital efficiency of having everything multilaterally netted. So when you go long on an exchange and short on another exchange or short with a market maker on Basonic, your net flat instantly. From well, a I, I, I'd like I'd like to come back to you about that um, atomic settlement and, and netting in in more detail in a second. But let's just, if we just focus here on on the the nature of the solution that you're offering. You've been very clear about the sort of what we might call the three arrows uh, risk, if you like. That that actually <laughs> you have this direct exposure. Nothing is collateralized. Everything's on the balance sheet, uh, and so it cascades through the system when when something goes goes wrong. Now. As I understand the solution which you're offering, it's a, it's a network in which you're going to have this whitelisted group of digital asset custodians and, and cryptocurrency exchanges, and they're going to be a, a closed group. And the trades are not going to be settled by the movement of assets from one balance sheet onto another, if you like, uh, including the stable coins uh, between these digital wallets. So actually, the, the assets themselves are not going to move at all. Uh, but instead of that, you're going to kind of in some way delegate those uh, digital assets to members of this group of whitelisted cryptocurrency exchanges uh, and custodians. Uh, and then they're going to settle, uh, as I understand it, atomically, as you've just mentioned, in i.e. in real time, uh, you know, cash versus assets, if you like, on your network. And then at some point later on, uh, there's going to be a final reckoning settling up between uh, the relevant layer one blockchains where those assets were originally issued on a net basis, which I think you also mentioned a minute ago. Now, is that is that a, that that rather crude description of of what the Basonic network is doing accurate? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty close. I mean, the main thing is is that we don't delegate assets to exchanges. So really, clients keep their assets in their own account at their own custodian, where we do represent basically a, mul a, a, a basically a multi custodial. Uh, blockchain network, right? So the solution that we're giving to our custodial partners allows those custodians to re-ledger those assets or tokenize those assets onto that layer two multi-custodial blockchain network. Those assets then become freely tradable and payable. So what's really happening is no need for delegation. You keep your assets in your own account. Those assets are then available to you to transact with anybody else in the network. And the the netting and the and the and really the settlement is is kind of two and even the atomic nature of the settlement is really happening in two layers. There's the trader to trader level. So I buy Bitcoin from you with dollars. That trade is clearing and settling instantly against those provable assets that you are each holding in your own account at the custodian. So you have this atomic exchange of value that represents the clearing and settlement. In other words, the trade is the settlement because you have a cryptographic proof of ownership of the change of assets at the custodial level. That is the first layer. The second layer of that, which you talked about earlier with the cross-custodian net settlement capability and that working group of global custodians from Hong Kong to, to Calgary, um, that is essentially a secondary layer where the custodians are net settling on behalf of all of the clients on the network periodically. So you have this real-time as you trade settlement that happens at the custodial level in, in terms of your ownership, perfecting your ownership of those assets so you don't have risk to your counterparties. And then those custodians, where, wherever assets do need to move physically between custodians, they have an atomic settlement capability. So that's that's kind of the way I would, I would describe it. And just to be clear on this point, so you as the owner of a digital asset, it remains in your digital wallet, but in order to make it tradable, it is tokenized onto the Basonic network. 
and then the custodians, the digital custodians, settle up net after the fact. Is that right? And that, that's cor that's correct. So the and, and it's really there's a lot of nuance here, unfortunately. But the reality is, is okay. these ledgers that we provide, the technology we provide to the custodians, they actually run those ledgers. So they're actually custodial blockchain ledgers which are no different than any other ledger, except that they have maintained cryptographic provability of the assets and the transaction lineage, right? So it's not much different than your assets sitting at your bank, in your checking account, in a regular database, except that this has cryptographic proof of those assets and maintains a cryptographic lineage. But the point being that it's not, it's not a basonic ledger, it's a custodial blockchain ledger where they're merely re-ledgering or tokenizing your assets in a way that they're in a form that can be then utilized across all the services on the network. And when they come to, to the, these digital custodians who are kind of operating the network, come to settle these net amounts, the good news about net settlement is it does cut the, presumably cuts the transaction costs when they net settle on behalf of all their underlying clients. And that process, I further understand, relies on, on smart contracts. Can you, you mentioned a lot of nuance, can you explain in a bit more detail how exactly that process works, especially in terms of, of allocating those net amounts, whether you're debit or credit, uh, in terms of your underlying clients. How exactly does that process work? Yeah, so just so just to kind of again uh, look at the two different layers. So on the trading, the intraday trading level, the real time higher frequency trading side of things, when I buy Bitcoin from you for dollars with the dollars I have in my custodial account, the Bitcoin you have in your custodial wallet, that transaction is happening in real time in milliseconds on chain at the custodian. So I now own the Bitcoin on chain at the custodian. You now own my dollars on chain at the custodian. That represents the first layer of sort of, uh, of, of settlement. And, and the netting is that it, it's affecting your collateral on chain of the custodian in real time at the time of the trade. So if you go long with one exchange, short with another, you are actually net flat immediately, instantly in milliseconds at the custodial level, right? So that's the first level of kind of atomic swap and the capital efficiency that you gain from that besides the elimination of the, the risk to your counterparty and that your counterparty may not settle. Because now you, you can go to the custodian and say, those assets that I own on your chain I'd like to have those now, right? So you don't have to rely on the counterparty to settle with you. You have a cryptographic proof of ownership at the custodial level. Now, that if that is happening across many, many clients at multiple custodians, you then have a need to potentially bring assets back to your home custodian. So imagine, you know, you've bought a bunch of digital assets at an away custodian. You now own those digital assets on chain at the custodian. That's the away custodian, not your home custodian. How do you get those back? And I'll talk specifically about how it works, but conceptually think about it like a certified check where you have certified good funds that are guaranteed by the issuer, but haven't yet cleared your bank account, right? You can, you can deposit it to your bank account and it will clear and now it's in your bank account and not in your, you know, in your hand as a, as a claim on the assets at the away uh, mm -hmm. custodian or away bank. The way that it works mechanically is basically we have a, the cross-custodian net settlement engine does the net settlement calculations across all of the counterparties at, at the different custodians, comes up with two main quantities. One is the netted quantities. So that's the portion that does not physically have to move to get assets back to your home custodian. So imagine one custodian owes a, a thousand ETH to another custodian and that custodian owes them on behalf of their client 700 ETH. 
you can imagine that 700 nets off doesn't physically have to move between custodian A and custodian B. That quantity can merely be burned and reallocated on the layer two custodial blockchain ledger. And I'll come back to the allocation side of it in a moment, but that's basically a process that is, uh, um, is an automated process that will do that burn and reallocation on the custodial blockchain ledgers. The, the portion that, the, we, that needs to physically move, we refer to that as the residual quantities. So those residual quantities in that example, where the 700 ETH nets off, 300 physically has to go from custodian B back to custodian A, for allocation to the clients at Custodian A, the way we've implemented that is with direct layer one blockchain protocol interoperability. So we've now built the smart contract layer, starting with the Ethereum blockchain for Ethereum-based assets, um, and also to move Bitcoin um, on Rootstock as a side chain of Ethereum, uh, where we can programmatically move Bitcoin in the same way that I'm gonna describe. But basically those smart contracts are for the custodians to interact with. So they have their own smart contract addresses. They are able to deposit the 300 ETH in that example into the layer one smart contract, into their own smart contract address. Those assets, are they can pull them back out if they like until they're, until they're uh, in a locked state. Once all of the custodians have loaded their residuals for different digital assets into the smart contracts, we basically what our engine is doing is able to de detect that. We're interacting with the smart contract as well from a read perspective. We know when all the custodians have loaded the expected residuals, we can then close down one atomic transaction that does both the burn and reallocation of the netted quantities that don't have to move on the layer two custodial blockchain ledger, for out, you know, which allocates it to the clients. And we can then also trigger as the executor of that smart contract, the, the, the movement of the assets between the custodians within the smart contract based on them all having loaded their residuals. And what that does in effect in, in plain English is physically move the digital assets between the custodians themselves at the smart contract level um, to cover the residual quantities that have to move, but doing it in an atomic way where neither custodian has to go first. And on the fiat side of that, fiat side of the equation, we have, you know, ultimately you can use a stable coin, of course, and we're working on a programmatic workflow to buy in and sell out the stablecoin and use stablecoins as the transport on layer one for the fiat residual quantities that have to move between custodian A and custodian B. But the other option that we have available today, which we've just finished um, implementing, is actually uh, an integration with JP Morgan's JPM coin. So as part of that one atomic transaction between the two custodians, what we're able to do is not only do the, the transaction that does the burn reallocation the physical movement of the residuals within the smart contract, but also call out to the JPM coin system to pay dollars from custodian A to custodian B, for example, using JPM coin. So you have a basically one big atomic transaction. So, and the whole point of all of this is that if you look at the traditional world, if you look at the FX markets, you have organizations like CLS that basically facilitate what we would have referred to as payment versus payment transactions, as opposed to delivery versus payment. Payment versus payment means there's no risk that you're not gonna get the assets owed to you from the other party on the other side. What Bosonic has done is basically create the equivalent of that in the digital asset space, um, where we're doing all, all the custodians are now able to settle with each other payment versus payment, and, and you don't have the risk of a settlement failure 
uh, and all of the problems that would come from that where, because you can imagine how it would work today if two custodians in the current world without Basonic want to transact, even if they're doing it on behalf of their clients, if they're transacting with liquidity that's away, at some point they have to net that all down and figure out who's going to go first and make the payment mm-hmm. to the other side. And that really is you know, very problematic as you start to scale this to the levels that we believe it's going to scale to. To be clear on those smart contracts, those are supplied by Basonic and they're used by these digital uh, custodians to, to they kind of load up the fact, well, my clients as a whole own 700 at that exchange and they owe 300 and they load that information into this smart contract. And then the smart contract interacts with the smart contract at the cryptocurrency exchange so that the, the net amount is settled atomically. Well, you don't. So what's interesting about this is that the exchanges actually don't have to directly interact with that. So on the cross custodian net settlement. So keep, so keep in mind, we should maybe step back and look at how exchanges interact with the network. So all of the parties, whether they're takers or makers providing liquidity, have collateral on the network at a custodian in their own account. So what we do with exchanges is we have the exchanges hold client omnibus accounts at the at a custodian on the Basonic network. So they're literally holding client omnibus money at a custodian on the Basonic network. At the trading level, when you transact with them, you have real-time clearing and settlement against those provable assets. So if I buy Bitcoin from an exchange that's on the Basonic network, I instantly own that Bitcoin on-chain at the custodian from the client from the Omnibus account that they're holding, right? So so that so they're really like a trading exchanges and market makers and buy side participants. They're all trading entities from our from our perspective. So they're benefiting from the trading level real-time clearing and settlement, no counterparty credit or settlement risk. At the, so what that means is, is those assets are actually at the custodian. So on a net basis, the custodians will do movements that cover all of the transactions, no matter whether the, the counterparty was an exchange, a market maker, a buy side participant. So the exchanges don't have to directly interact in cross-custodian net settlement. It's literally just the custodians using this service on, on behalf of all of the clients that have been transacting. Mm-hmm. Although cryptocurrency exchanges are sometimes custodians as well, are they not? And I guess in your model, they're just another custodian. Well, in our model, they're not because none of our clients want to hold assets on the balance sheet of any exchanges. So if they're if they if an exchange has a segregated custody business, they're they're eligible to participate in the Basonic network as a custodian. But that is got to be the segregated entity, not the exchange entity that's holding assets on the balance sheet. So if you look at some of the exchanges that do have a custody business that's a separate agreement, separate structure, separate legal entity, totally different liabilities, you know, in terms of placing assets there. They are certainly, you know, eligible to participate in the cross-custodian net settlement. Now, what's the, what's the timescale on which this net settlement process, if I can call it that, takes place? Yeah, well, on the trading level, and, and it's important to understand there's also an intra-custodian sort of net settlement process that's running at the trading level. Um, from a trading perspective, and a collateral perspective, you're sort of getting real-time clearing and settlement and you don't have to, you don't think about the physical movements that the custodians do, whether it's intra-custodian or cross-custodian, it's all handled for you. So you don't really think about that or have any direct involvement in that. Um, And the cadence of it is basically whatever the custodians want the cadence to be. Uh, and And it does have some practical um, you know, realities around sort of depending on how their, their wallet infrastructure is structured. So for example, 
if the custodian runs an omnibus for digital assets for their clients on top of their wallet technology and the movement of assets between two parties inside that custodian is not hitting layer one, therefore there is no layer one cost or slowness, they might have a cadence that's every 15 minutes to do net settlement movements. And we give them all the tools to automate that at the custodial level as well. We provide all of the net settlement you know, engine and, and all of its capabilities. Um, if they are hitting layer one, they would obviously only want to do that maybe end of day or even on a lower uh, frequency cadence. And and um, and then on the cross custodian net settlement side of things, it, it's designed to be super flexible where the custo- any custodian can initiate a, a cross custodian net settlement movement with any other custodian anytime they want. And the other party, if they're willing to enter into that uh, transaction with them and cycle through that process with them can do it anytime they, literally anytime they want. Um, and we've designed it to be flexible that way because we, you know, obviously there might be uh, needs to do this kind of ad hoc. Um, and certainly, you know, until the group comes together and, and decides on sort of how they'd like to see it, you know, operate as a group, um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure we could support, support that. So it really is up to the custodians to decide the cadence on both levels. Mm-hmm. So I was bringing, uh, a wrong-headed traditional idea to the process saying so this is not like batch processing at the end of the day the custodians decide bilaterally how they want to do the net settlement among themselves yeah that's that's correct and i'm sure it will coalesce into sort of a preferred model that that everybody uh you know is interested in so that's part of why we have the working group it's really allowing all of those organizations to sort of shape uh, sort of the the rules of engagement and 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 the legal framework and so forth in conjunction with with us and and our council both from a business side and from a from a from a legal and regulatory side. Can I can I inject here perhaps another rather old fashioned uh, or traditional uh, piece of thinking about this, which is is what's going on here like or unlike prime brokerage? You know, prime brokerage began. Uh, as a service in which um, buy-side firms could trade with all sorts of counterparties for whom would not normally trade with them because they were not credit worthy, but they could do it through an investment bank, a prime a prime broker, and all those trades would come back to the prime broker, and that prime broker would clear and ultimately settle uh, those those trades. Is what is what the Masonic Network is doing comparable with that, or is it completely different from that? Well, it, it's a great question, and the reality is, 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 is it's creating an alternative to that. But I, but I want to, I want to explain that a bit because it's not, it's, it's not at all eliminating prime brokerage. Um, it's really a way for prime brokers to leverage this and actually augment their own businesses. But, but you're, you're right, and I think you have to take a step back and, and ask, what is prime brokerage? Prime brokerage. And there's a lot of confusion around this, particularly in digital assets. Um, prime brokerage at its core, the thing you are buying is actually the credit intermediation, right? You're literally paying somebody to use their trade in their name and credit out on the street instead of your name and credit, because it's obviously easier to get to face other counterparties if you're using a tier one bank and their balance sheet. The problem with prime brokerage, and by the way, all the lending and all those other things, leverage, those are all sort of ancillary services. They're important services, but it's not the core thing you're buying. The core thing you're buying is that credit intermediation. Now, the, the problem with that model or even any central counterparty model, whether it's an exchange with a CCP that's novating the trades and is the buyer to every seller and the seller to every buyer, 
all of those approaches are reliant upon a single centralized balance sheet. The balance sheet of a tier one bank as a prime broker or as a CCP, the balance sheet of a clearinghouse and all the member contributed capital, those, that's basically the problem, right? So in the Bosonic model, um, what's, what's interesting about it is that it eliminates the need for that single centralized balance sheet to eliminate the counterparty credit and settlement risks. It's a pure technology alternative to that. Um, and, and it's obviously, you know, this is where it gets into a little bit of additional nuance. You know, it's easy to understand conceptually what Bosonic does from a fully funded perspective. But what happens when you do bring in credit and leverage, which is very important in, in, a, in a financial market, right? We, we're, so, so, you know, we've basically solved that problem through a particular approach around a repo market. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but that there is a way to bring in leverage and credit, but do it in a way where it's not originating solely from the CCP or solely from the exchange or solely from a tier one bank as a prime broker. And so the so that that you know raises some really important questions as you think about prime brokerage in digital assets because we all know that none of the tier one banks are doing prime brokerage in digital assets. In fact, most of them don't want to do prime brokerage in plain vanilla assets, mm. and we we'll see them exiting the FX space and things like that, kind of left, right, and center. Um, you know this this is and the the problem with that the reason for that is because they don't want to have all the al the credit allocation. There's now capital charges around the credit allocation. There's obviously risks. I mean, take a look at Credit Suisse and the debacle that they're in now, possibly triggered by the, a $6 billion plus loss from a single hedge fund client in their prime brokerage unit, right? So that gives you a sense of the scope of balance sheet that you need. And that leads to the big question in, in digital assets. If you're going to look to a prime broker in digital assets, your first question as a traditional firm is going to be, who's my, you know, who's my counterparty? They're obviously going to be your counterparty from a trading perspective. And then your next question is going to be how big is your balance sheet? And if you look at the firms that are offering those services, you know, even some of the larger ones, um, they don't really have a big enough balance sheet to do that at scale, uh, we would argue. And so the model that Pasonic has created, uh, including this new way of injecting credit and leverage in through a repo market without changing the credit risk profile or the settlement risk profile of the downstream counterparties, is a really, really important um, development in market infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Now, as you pointed out, at the heart of this is, is, is credit intermediation. You, you've alluded to the fact that big investment banks are looking to exit the traditional prime brokerage business, if you like, because of the capital costs, uh, um, among other things, and, and, and of course, the, the risks are becoming progressively less attractive, partly because the buy-side firms are, are actually very alive to the investment bank itself as a liability of theirs. Now, you, you've been very clear that your core mission is to eliminate that counterparty credit settlement risk. But you are, I hope it's not an unfair description, a technology firm. You're not a, you're not a bank with a big uh, or indeed small balance sheet. How, how reliant is your model on, uh, and I'm sure there are other factors at play here, we'll come to in a minute, but how reliant is your model on the atomic settlement, by which I I, I mean to un mean you to understand that any transaction where the other side doesn't turn up with what it's meant to deliver, the transaction simply simply dies. In other words, the, the counterparty credit risk is eliminated by the fact that it's payment versus payment or delivery versus payment in real time all the time. How reliant is your model on that? 
Yeah. So, well, the, the the core thing that we're doing to eliminate risks is making the transactions atomic, both at the trading level and then, as we described it, even at the custodian net settlement level, right? So, those atom that the atomicity of moving and all that means, just in plain English, is a concurrent transaction that's a total success or a total fail. So, in other words, nobody ever nobody has to go first. Nobody has the risk of I went first and I didn't get what I was receiving mm-hmm. because it's a settlement fail upstream somewhere uh, or down, you know, whatever. And so that is. That is really um, important. It is it is a very very important part of, of of what we're doing. The key thing though is that Basonic is not a counterparty to the trades, right? So when you sign a Basonic agreement, you're signing a technology license agreement. Whether you're a custodian or whether you're a trading entity, we're licensing those counter those parties different technology components that communicate with each other. So we're really operating the network in terms of a messaging layer, um, and 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 running the network as a business. But it's really custodian licensed and operated ledgers connecting into that network and it's trading entities that are holding accounts at those custodians using various bits of trading kit that we deliver or even their own trading kit if they like uh, to participate and face other counterparties on the network. So that atomic swap concept at the custodial level is how we eliminate all the counterparty credit settlement. So we're never a, a counterparty and therefore we don't need any balance sheet. There is no novation of trades going on here. This is literally, um, you know, happening on chain at the custodian in real time, independent of Basonic and its balance sheet or it being a, you know, a participant in any way in the trades. Now, you mentioned credit, by which I don't mean credit intermediation, where I mean actually credit. And I understand Basonic is planning to develop a, a repo market, presumably to ensure that participants who don't actually have what they need to, to deliver into a, a real time atomic uh, settlement can actually borrow what they need presumably against collateral. Uh, now, is that is that collateral also um, tokenized onto the onto the onto the, the digital custodian network that you that you operate in the same way as everything else we've talked about? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, and it needs to be I'll explain a little bit about how it works. So we've already built this this whole repo market capability. Um, we're in the middle of putting the the finishing touches around the auto liquidation so that we can maintain uh, basically all of the margin levels that people people require. Um, but the but the we're using really a lot of DeFi concepts here. So you have lenders that I mean maybe it's helpful to describe the current process. So today, if you want to lend Bitcoin institutionally, you're sitting on a Bitcoin position. You want to lend it out, get a yield. You basically generally will go to some sort of an intermediary. You sign an agreement with them, you send them your coin, they then go find somebody to borrow it, they sign an agreement with the borrower, the borrower wires them the dollar collateral, they send them the coin. It's a a very disjointed process that's heavily intermediated um, and very clunky and not fit for purpose for a real-time transaction, obviously. And obviously you're turning over your assets, both the collateral and the coin. In the Basonic model, in the repo market, we're just leveraging all the same concepts Lenders keep their assets in their own accounts at their own custodians. They control the, the they do have those assets do get tokenized if they wish them to be uh, utilized in this way. They can then post their interest into any of the repo uh, books, right? So there's different repo books that allow that where there's competition around the, the, the yield or the price, the interest rate. Um, but there are different initial margin terms on those different pools of liquidity or books. So imagine a 25% initial margin pool, which obviously carries greater risk. You have the option to post your interest there 
you might price it higher because you have greater risk with only 25% initial margin. Then maybe you have an over collateralized pool, maybe even 125% uh, collateral pool, which obviously you're going to price that lower. You have a lot less risk around, you know, loss of those assets as a lender. Now, the key thing is, and, and, and this it become obvious why this is the right way to inject credit and leverage into an ecosystem like this, because those those people that are lending, that have those assets on chain at the custodian now, is a, from a lender perspective, if you as a borrower have collateral on chain at the custodian and you do a repo transaction, that repo transaction changes the ownership of the underlying assets on chain in real time. So to give you a, a concrete example, I, I'm in the 50% initial, I'm looking at the 50% initial margin one day repo pool for, for Bitcoin. I can post $100,000 of collateral, borrow $200,000 with a Bitcoin. The lender, that transaction is between me and a particular lender or a group of lenders. That, let's say it's one lender. I now own that Bitcoin on chain at the custodian that I borrowed on the repo. They now own my dollar collateral on chain at the custodian. So it's just another real time atomic swap of assets. Now, the benefit of that is that Bitcoin that I borrowed on the repo, when I sell that to another counterparty on the network, I'm actually fully funded against that counterparty, even though I'm levered against my lender, right? So from a trading ecosystem perspective, none of the trading counterparties need to care how levered any of the other counterparties are in the network because all of the trading is actually still fully funded because everybody is repoing in the assets that they don't have that they're transacting. Right. So that keeps all the risk out on the edges between the borrowers and the lenders. And, 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 and basically what it what it allows for um, is crowdsourcing of almost unlimited balance sheet just against people. The only requirement is that you're a client at with an account at a custodian who wants to lend, as opposed to having to be a specialist firm or have special technology or, or what have you. And so we think that, um, you know, looking at some of the DeFi lending protocols, if you look at the amount of assets that they've been able to attract, even in anonymous pools, it's quite impressive, right? It's, it's, it's massive, you know, tens and tens of billions of dollars in some of these uh, protocols. So um, we think that there is a, a very big market and it's been confirmed by, you know, all of the leading firms that are involved in lending, the ones that are still in business, uh, including the ones that are still in business. Um, that want to lend in this space, they're very interested in lending in that way to get the yield. And, and, and the beauty of this is that you can have, for example, then a market maker who might want to price 100 different assets and stream those prices out to different counterparties. They don't have to hold all that inventory. They can have a relatively small amount of dollar collateral or maybe a portfolio, ultimately in phase two, a portfolio of other assets that becomes their collateral that's appropriately haircutted. And they can basically repo those other assets that they're selling to other counterparties kind of just in time as those counterparties transact. And it gives, it gives them the ability to eliminate all that capital cost of hold, holding all that inventory, but does it in a way where it doesn't endanger any of the downstream counterparties. They have no, no additional credit risk to, those, uh, to each other, even though there is a, could be a very large amount of leverage between the borrowers and the lenders. Hope that makes sense. I know it's complicated, but it's the right way to do this instead of a loan market, which is how some other markets are structured in terms of how they finance leverage. Um, it's obviously a much, much safer way for the broader ecosystem to basically bring leverage into the equation. I, I read what you were saying is that this is a proper repo market. The ownership, the title to these assets actually moves. It's not like anyone's sort of pledging this stuff and 
well, if I fail to return your stuff, you know, you might get this and be able to sell that to recoup your loss. This is the real thing. That's that's correct. And, and, and it has all sorts of implications because if you look at, you know, the whole, a lot of the three arrows fallout, a, a big part of it was just people thought they pledged collateral. People thought they had perfected an interest in collateral that they hadn't. There was rehypothecation going on. There's all these things going on. And if you relegate all that to custodial blockchain ledgers with cryptographic proofs and everything's programmatic and programmatically enforced, you have a much, much safer world of digital yeah. transactions. Yeah. You don't revisit Lehman Brothers International circa September 2008. Where's my exactly. stuff? Now, one thing that occurs to me, if, if you are operating this, this repo service as well, uh, the Bosonic network is, is becoming a very interesting entity. You're kind of orchestrating uh, trading by these, these firms between these digital custodians on multiple exchanges. You're doing, uh, you're orchestrating um, exchanges of assets between these custodians on whatever timescale they bilaterally agree between them. Uh, and you're also now doing a kind of um, securities financing product, kind of collateral management and financing generation of credit, again, working with the, with the various custodians. So do you, do you think Basonic has, is it kind of evolving away from being a, a technology vendor and is becoming almost a market infrastructure. I used the term market infrastructure when I was introducing you, but I was I premature or is that how you see yourselves now? No, I think, look, I mean, I think we're, I think there's some open questions around some of this. I mean, we would like to obviously be a technology vendor and not be a regulated entity, but as a practical matter, there are, there are things that are very, very valuable to the ecosystem that require some kind of regulatory cover, right? And so if you think about, for example, the repo market, um, those are basically securities transactions. So we're not live with that today, but when we are live with that, those that would require uh, or may require in some jurisdictions a you know a, a broker dealer license or the equivalent. And Basonic is actually going to, has a whole regulatory roadmap. We're actually very close to getting our broker dealer and ATS license here in the United States. Part of that is so we can offer services like that you know without having to necessarily partner with somebody that has the regulatory cover. But the truth is, is a lot of what we're doing uh, is with other FMIs, other large regulated organizations. And many of these are enterprise deals where they might take our technology and, and, and essentially operate it under their own umbrella, where they do have the regulatory cover to deliver those kinds of services to the clients. So it's a, it's a blend of things. Um, there is a whole roadmap you know, here. We don't think, we do think that, you know, we've, we've done some analysis around sort of, you know, you know, is this a clearinghouse? And, and obviously not having to require any balance sheet in play, you know, makes it very different than the typical clearinghouse. And we've looked at some of the clearinghouse agency exemptions that have been granted in the United States, for example, which is a, you know, very heavily regulated jurisdiction for that. And, and, and there's clearly ways to uh, get, um, uh, you know, excluded from that, that necessity of, you know, registering as a clearinghouse agency. Uh, and so we are looking at possibly pursuing that, you know, here in the United States. But the truth is, uh, right now, today, there's still a lot of gray area and a lot of lack of clarity on sort of what the requirements really will be. But we're, we're definitely thinking about that. Um, and, and obviously, you know, we, we cater to larger regulated institutions and fiduciaries. You know, many of those, uh, you know, may, may ultimately become bigger partners in the ecosystem where perhaps part of what we're running is actually a service offered in partnership with our technology and their regulatory cover. So that's all, that's a fair, fair point. Um, but, but obviously we're, 
you know, the main thing is, is we're not a counterparty and we're not using our own balance sheet. We're really just providing this tech. So to the extent that we technically fall into some, you know, regulatory or regulated activity, you know, we do have to find a solution to that, whether it's directly being regulated or using a partner. Okay, I'll come back to your regulatory licenses in a in a in a second. But um, and I also talked to you a bit about the the members of the broader ecosystem, your your CCNS uh, network, if you like. But just to clarify one thing, which is important in in why people would would start to use the Basonic network, is you you mentioned once or twice that that uh, it leads to economies in in capital. Now, do those capital savings come purely from the elimination of the need to maintain uh liquidity if you like at, at multiple exchanges because you need to pre-fund in order to settle atomically or, or are there other sources of capital savings apart from that uh yeah there's well there's a there's a, a number of things i mean uh obviously funding different multiple exchanges is problematic you can have one much smaller balance at a custodian and if those exchanges are participating in the basonic network you can still face them so you do drastically reduce the amount of collateral that you have to have uh, in order to interact with those exchanges. So that's one, that's certainly one element. The other is really that real-time sort of multilateral netting that's happening, right? Because if you go long with uh, an exchange and short with a market maker, and you now need to, let's say you're happy to keep the position on the exchange, you know, you're going to look for an offset, you know, with your trading strategy or whatever it is, business you're running you now have to settle that asset over on the market maker side, right? So you you now sold them maybe a digital asset. You have to deliver that at the end of the day. You would If you don't have that you know, on hand, you would have to borrow that in. You have the cost of borrowing that in to, to deliver that asset to them. You have the then, you know, you then are still carrying that market risk on the underlying asset in addition to the, the, the rate on the asset or the rate on the borrow. So, so there's a lot of capital efficiencies to be gained by having just this multilateral netting in real time against collateral at the custodians, um, and so that's that's obviously a you know a, a huge component of this. And anybody that is um, you know uh, you know wanting to get involved on the trading side of things, um, you know if you think about uh, you know just not having counterpart like if you think about a regulated entity like a like a let's say an investment bank or somebody like that that wants to run a trading desk or offer trading out to their clients, direct market access or otherwise, <clears throat> to be able to access the digital asset market, um, they might have all sorts of, if they're taking balance sheet risk, they might have all sorts of additional uh, collateral requirements or reserve requirements around those potential risks, right? So to the extent that you can minimize those risks and not have balance sheet risk and not be doing this off your balance sheet, you may be able to also drastically reduce the amount of sort of reserve capital and so forth, uh, depending on the type of organization that you are. Now, can I make sure I understand um, better this this broader ecosystem you're you're talking about? We've touched upon this this cross custodian net settlement uh, group you're you're setting up. Um, we've also talked about um, you know multiple exchanges. So, is that broader ecosystem uh, does it? It obviously needs customers, uh, obviously, but do you also need exchanges as well as digital asset custodians to be part of this, if you like, whitelisted, basonic ecosystem, network, group, whatever we want to call it? So how many different interests do you need represented on this group to, to really get the, the scale and volume that you're looking to build? What types yeah, of interests need to be there? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And and yes, it is it is an ecosystem play. And we've spent the bulk of 2022 basically building out that ecosystem. So I'll come back to the custodians in a moment. That's obviously probably the most important thing that we've done is organize this massive group of global uh, custodians. And, and I'll talk a bit more in detail about that. But yes, you do also need the liquidity sources, which includes both the market makers and the exchanges. And we now have a quorum of big name exchanges and big name market makers that are providing liquidity over the Masonic network to clients that are on the Masonic network. But it's a huge benefit to them because if you, if you look at the direction of travel, um, you know, from a regulatory perspective and really from every perspective, from a risk perspective, you know, in the wake of Three Arrows Capital, um, clients largely don't want any assets on exchanges. They don't want bilateral credit risks to the market makers and they don't want all these settlement risks. Um, uh, so what, what, what's nice about joining the Basonic Network is that you can face off against a very large set of clients that you may not be able to reach directly under your current business model, right? So we have clients, um, and I won't name names, but full, you know, regulated entities in the United States that are running the whole, whole crypto business on Basonic's technology. They don't have to do anything off their own balance sheet. They're not taking any risk. They're not touching digital assets directly. That has that's really important, uh, and they're and they're not able to put client assets on the exchanges. They're not able to uh, take risk to downstream counterparties and market makers with bilateral credit because of their uh, view on um, you know their regulatory matters and and they're acting as a fiduciary for their clients. And so what that means is they're just not going to be able to do business in the in the current model without something like Basonic you know facilitating all that. And so if you're coming on as a market maker or an exchange, you're basically able to face, you know, ultimately everybody that are that is in that category across all of the custodians that are on the Basonic network with one account at a custodian of your choice on the Basonic network. So just think about the leverage that that gives in terms of liquidity distribution. So that's why we're able to successfully sort of build out this ecosystem and get people to come on because it's really win-win for everybody. Um, on on every level, and and even you can look at conversely, just one kind of funny point. I mean, if you're a market maker, and you're giving out buy, unsecured credit lines, and you're not holding collateral of your end client, probably there's a lot of clients you're not taking credit risk to, and you're saying no. So you can use Basonic to face all of those clients without any counterparty credit or settlement risk. You have the you post a little collateral, they post collateral in their own account with the custodian. You can price them. And now you have you know the ability to face that client and provide them liquidity without any risk to that client from a credit perspective. So that's super super important. Um, and kind of uh, uh, back to the custodial side of things, as you can imagine, the holy grail of the whole thing that we're building or have built, I should say, is this cross custodian net settlement capability and bringing together what is now a group of well over twenty seven, it's probably even north of thirty now participants in that cross custodian net settlement group. And I'm, again, I'm not gonna name names because it is a, it is a very special uh, sort of arrangement that we have with all these folks where we are you know, trying to foster openness. And so we don't wanna, we don't wanna uh, you know, say too much about the discussions or say too much about who the participants are, except the ones that have been happy to be named, which I think you, you probably have seen those in the press. But there are everything from the biggest global custodians that you can name and some of the biggest banks that you can name all the way through to the crypto natives. We do have a few sort of platforms and venues that we think are you know, interesting to have in the mix as part of the, the, 
how, how this all shapes up. So they have a voice in sort of, um, the, you know, how we're, the working group is putting things together. Um, but ultimately that very large global network of custodians tied together by a common protocol, common technology, that's not a, not a theory, not something we're building and that's three years out, but something that we just demoed for the working group a few weeks ago and we plan to do our first live real money transaction uh, where we settle custodian to custodian using the cross custodian net settlement um, functionality as early as mid-November this year. So next month, I mean, we're, is where we're, what we're targeting. Uh, fingers crossed, everything, everything comes together the way we'd like. So, you know, this is a very real solution with a very elegant and very good so, you know, solution to the, the who goes first problems to eliminate all those risks for those custodians, make those settlement movements atomic. And, and, and everybody understands that, you know, even if they don't, even if they don't, uh, you know, want to uh, use Basonic from a trading perspective, you know, to access the, the market, they all understand that at some point they were, if, even if they're trading directly with other participants at, at away custodians, they're going to have this problem of settlement custodian to custodian. And that's why we've been able to assemble, you know, the, probably the biggest, by far the biggest group of custodians that are cooperating in any, in any initiative globally in digital assets. I'll come back to that custodian question in just a sec, but just to clarify one narrow point, when you refer to market makers, you're referring to Uniswap, SushiSwap, are you, or are you referring to something else? No, I'm not referring to uh, the DeFi AMMs. Um, so we haven't, we haven't really touched on DeFi. We have a whole roadmap for that, but that's that's kind of a 2023 thing for us mm -hmm. um, where we're tying in some of those protocols, some of those decentralized exchanges. That's a, that's a different kettle of fish. When I talk about market makers, I'm talking about the usual non-bank market makers in all the other asset classes. So all, all the names you're used to seeing by now in the news, uh, you know, Citadel, Hudson River, uh, you know, you name it, Optiver, Flow Traders, um, mm -hmm. all of these guys, plus the crypto native ones like Galaxy Digital um, and, and, and others that are that are making markets in the space and providing liquidity, uh, you know, and, and that's more of kind of an OTC flavor of liquidity is the way that the industry thinks about it. Mm -hmm. um, we're definitely talking about sort of TradFi centralized players that are very, very large proprietary trading shops, Jump Crypto, all these guys that are making markets in the space. Okay, so I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I asked that question. And so DeFi is, is project 2023 for you. Um, you, you referred to, to 30 participants in your cross custodian network. Now, um, you did put out a press release when you first set it up with, with, with four uh, banks in it, First Digital in Hong Kong, Tetra Trust in Canada, Vast Bank in, in US, and, and of course, uh, Trustology now being bought by Bitpanda back in in February. So you're you're not having difficulty adding to this this group. You, by the sound of it, another twenty five plus have actually become members of the group. And as you said, that includes some of the big name global custodians as well. Um, yeah, yeah, that's correct. And 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 one of the key partners in the cross custodian net settlement uh, um, working group and part of that solution is actually JP Morgan with JPM Coin. So that is one of the um, uh, fiat rail option. So when we do a cross custodian net settlement movement, one of the ways that we move dollars between custodian A and custodian B uh, for allocation to custodian B's clients is by calling JPM coin systems um, and using JPM coin. So those custodians that are JP Morgan clients and are will, want to use JPM coin as the fiat rail, they can do that as part of this cross custodian net settlement. So 
uh, we we are um, you know very obviously very proud of that partnership with them and and to have them involved in that and they have a quite uh, quite excellent product that lets us move dollars without all the normal banking uh, cutoffs and constraints you know where you have 24 7 365 ability to move uh, fiat currencies starting with dollars and ultimately with a, with a number of other key currencies uh, coming in early next year. Mm-hmm. Now this might be a stupid question, but is the range of of coins and tokens that can be settled through your network constrained in any way? Is it is it the top twenty, the top ten, the, the top fifty? Is it purely driven by the users of the network themselves, i.e., what the customers want to trade, what the what the custodians want to want to custody, and what's available on the exchanges? You're kind of agnostic as to what people are actually doing. But if you step back and ask yourself, well. I don't know, there's 3,000 uh, potential coins out there which and tokens out there which could be settled on our network, but actually 90% of our business is in the top 15 or 20. Is that a well, stupid think, question? No, it's not a, not a stupid question at all. I think, I think um, the, the, yes, we're totally agnostic. Um, in fact, you can actually do, the, the, whole, the whole thing that we've developed here, really, if you think about it, allows anybody to tokenize any asset at any custodian and do an atomic swap for any other asset at any other custodian. So that could be dollars and treasuries. It could be Bitcoin and treasuries. It could be, you know, dollars and Bitcoin. It doesn't really matter what the underlying asset is. Uh, It's whatever the custodians wish to tokenize and support from a custodial perspective on the network. And so it is uh, dictated somewhat by what do the custodians want to custody what do the liquidity providers want to want to provide, and then ultimately, what do the trading entities want to trade? Um, from our perspective, it, it it doesn't matter what we're settling. So, if you think about, for example, a traditional, you know, ultimately traditional securities. If you look at a lot of the enterprise deals that we're working on now, um, and some of them are, you know, in proof of concept phase, we're basically we could even do something like tokenize the book a record of a CSD, and you just think about them like the custodian or like the um, layer one blockchain protocol you're able to take that tokenized representation, have atomic exchanges of value on the Basonic network, and ultimately message that downstream for a change to the ultimate book of record of the CSD, as an example. So it really doesn't matter what the underlying asset is. And, and just to kind of expand your mind beyond crypto, if you think about traditional assets, think about CSDs, um, you know, and whether those are natively digital assets that are being issued in the future, or whether they're non-natively digital assets today that just exist in the current form, all of that can be tokenized and, and made tradable uh, using the Basonic um, infrastructure. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you some dull but very important questions about contracts, about regulation, regulatory licenses, uh, which you've touched on, uh, and about the, the legal position here. So if you are a, uh, you've explained that Basonic is never the counterparty. So if I'm a user of this service, um, who who am I contracting with? Am I you contract with the exchanges and the, and, and the custodians, or are they contracted with Basonic in any way? You really so what you're it's a great question actually. So what you're doing is you're contracting with the custodian because obviously you have to have a custodial account. We don't intermediate that. That's a direct custodial account set up with the custodian. You're contracting with us from a license perspective, licensing some technology. Now what's ultimately happening is peer to peer transactions that self-clear and settle by virtue of how the atomic swap technology works, right? So that's why we're not a clearinghouse. We're not a, you know, we're not an intermediate, we're not a credit intermediary. We're not a counterparty. 
it's because you really are facing your downstream counterparties. Now, what's important to understand though, is that if you're comfortable with how the model works, you understand why that doesn't present a risk in terms of facing that counterparty, right? It's all done using the Basonic model. You have proof of ownership of everything at all times at the custodial level. You're going to the custodian to request those assets if you want those assets uh, from the custodian, not your downstream um, counterparty. And so you do have the only risk really in the system is actually custodial risk. And that, and there is a, you know, it's important to note that there's a very big spectrum of custodians. All of the custodians in our working group and in our global custodial network are regulated entities um, that are, you know, approved in various ways. Um, and, 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 and I think it's not hard to understand that with on the back of announcements like BNY Mellon just yesterday or the day before, whenever that was, uh, offering coming in and offering digital asset custody, there's likely going to be a, a pretty significant shift for at least a certain segment of the traditional institutional market towards those larger banks. Um, you know, they're obviously going to still be specialist custodians that maybe have better access to staking and other reasons why you might have some assets at some of those other custodians, but we think there will be a big shift. So having a custodial risk as your main risk in the system is, is not a, is a, is a, is a is an acceptable risk if you're looking at custodians like, uh, you know, like BNY Mellon, of course. So, um, so that's really how to think about how it's how it's structured um, from a from sort of a legal perspective. And it is a kind of a seemingly dull question, but it is but it is really important. And similarly, the licenses that we're signing again to the with the custodians to give them that technology to run their to perform their function on the Basonic network, it really makes that kit that technology their technology for purposes of servicing our mutual client. So just on that that legal position, which you, the term you used a minute ago, your only risk in the system is the custodian. In other words, so if, if your assets go missing for whatever reason or your counterparty fails, it's going to be the custodian who is expected to make you whole. And that will be you as the user's contract with that custodian, which defines the terms of that or regulation, I guess, might define it as well, particularly in Europe. But is that the position? Is that the legal position? Yeah, sort of. Just, but you have to you have to sort of drill down on that a bit, right? So you're not. It's not. So remember, the custodians are really the custodian role in the Basonic ecosystem is safeguard client assets, mm -hmm. tokenize those assets on on the custodial blockchain ledger, burn those assets off the custodial blockchain ledger to remove them when they're when it's time to pull them off the ledger and process net settlement movements on behalf of the parties. So as long as, so the, where, the, where the real risks and liabilities lie are around custodial, the usual things, custodial errors around what they're putting on the ledger. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe there are, you know, fidelity questions around, you know, it, it could, could, could somebody at the custodial level steal your assets? You know, it's, it's very similar to the same risks you have with a checking account at, at, at any bank, right? in terms of the operational risk on the custodial side and then the risk that somebody inside the bank does something you know, to your assets. So those things are generally covered by you know, the custodian in various ways. Um, and, and that's really the model here. You're never gonna have, if, 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 if you know, you're never gonna have, if the custodians are doing their jobs correctly, you're never gonna have a situation where you don't have an asset to settle, right? So, so that's, that's the kind of the whole point of the, of the model. And ultimately, you know, where we're headed with this is, um, you know, when there's a government sanctioned stablecoin, for example, for main for the main, you know, currencies or even for dollars, 
we could actually have the assets when they're locked at the custodian before that tokenization step, they could actually be deposited to a layer one smart contract where they're locked and they're provable, independently provable and, 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 and locked for uh, use. And that would even mitigate even some of the risks I just described um, and take it to a whole new level. It doesn't make sense to do that just for the digital assets until, because it doesn't make sense to hold, force clients to hold a stable coin in the current environment instead of dollars. But once there is something that's government sanctioned or sponsored, it would make a lot of sense to have sort of those layer one locks, even at the custodial level, which gets rid of a lot of those risks that I just talked about. Okay. Um, sorry, I promise this is my penultimate question, but could you share with me a little bit about your own regulatory status? You mentioned a little while back that this repo service you're developing probably entails a getting a broker-dealer license. You mentioned an ATS license. Obviously, in the United States, you have a rich variety of regulators you could, you could be regulated by. But what exactly is the regulatory status of the service you're providing? By which I mean, you know, who is regulating Basonic? And, and I suppose who can use the services that, that Basonic supplies? Yeah, well, I'll try to I'll try to keep this uh, to be a short answer. Um, the it's a very big question. As you yeah. It obviously differs in all the in all the different jurisdictions. But at the end of the day, we're 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 today what we're focused on are digital assets that we believe to be commodities. You know, in consultation with our regulatory council, um, and we are doing this all for uh, eligible contract participant business only, so institutional only, and so therefore it kind of puts it into the CFTC jurisdiction, uh, and it kind of puts it into, and, and we're, by the way, we're only doing spot today in this in this way, spot currencies or spot crypto assets and, and fiat currencies. And so it puts it into very similar sort of regulatory framework as you would have for an anonymous FXECN that's all institutional and spot only, no derivatives, no swaps. So what that basically means is you don't have a registration requirement. And, and so we don't, we believe today that even in the United States, amongst those parties doing that limited set of assets, we don't have a registration requirement. As we move into wanting to do the whole long tail of digital assets, and obviously as we move into other jurisdictions, there's gonna be slight variations. In the United States, what we've done is we've, we've already many, many, many months ago filed for a broker dealer and alternative trading system or ATS license. And what that will do when granted is give us uh, the, 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 the regulatory cover um, to be able to offer all of these services in the United States, even all the way down to the retail level, even for things that might be digital asset securities, if we ever get to a point where we actually have a clear definition and we can actually say that with some confidence, all whatever those assets are, whether they're securities or not, we'll be able to transact them. And, and also our repo um, market transactions will fit you know, well within that. Uh, that framework. And so we're very, very close to getting those licenses granted, we think, with full digital asset permissions, and it'll let us reach all the way down to the retail level as well. So we'll be able to go beyond institutional. And, uh, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty excited about, about what that means. And we, we think that anybody that is transacting anything that might be a digital asset security in the United States is going to have to get that regulatory cover here in the US, right? So we think that uh, there's probably a long queue of folks trying to get those licenses right now. My last question is, is, is this, you were very early into this, into this game. If you like, you, you've made a lot of progress, uh, but you're not alone in trying to create 
this type of network there there are other entities who are who are developing so-called prime brokerage services we're seeing crypto exchanges uh interdealer brokers uh, some of the market makers uh, getting into this game as well even digital asset custodians looking to develop uh, prime services if you like what do you feel apart from your early entry what do you feel are your competitive differentiators as you look at other providers who are getting into this marketplace now what makes you different yeah it's a great it's a great question um, and it really comes down to a very big technology moat that we've built over the last nearly seven years now um, and 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 it really is the fact that it's all technology driven blockchain there's a whole bunch of really important factors like if you were if you were to ask me what is what you have to be to be sort of the category leader in the space I would say that you have to be custodian agnostic, multi-custodian and cross-custodian capable. It needs to be blockchain-based, so you have cryptographic proofs of even at the uh, trading level, which is non-trivial to do. You can't do it on a layer one. You need to do it on a layer two because of the transaction scalability and throughput problem. It needs to have direct layer one interoperability and facilitate settlement movements between custodians where they're payment versus payment. You don't have any risk. You know, you, you, and you have to do it in a way that it is not constrained by a single centralized balance sheet in order to really scale this across the whole market. If you look at any other point solution, I'll just think about them as point solutions, um, even the biggest names, none of them have a big enough balance sheet to actually prime broke the whole space at scale, right? Not even the biggest name you can think of that's supposedly offering prime brokerage services. They also have other problems in that they're generally not custodian agnostic meaning you have to custody with them um, or they're designated custodian and they're not generally not liquidity agnostic, uh, meaning you have to take their liquidity if it's offered by an exchange and maybe two or three other liquidity sources. You don't get that true direct market access and, and freedom of choice around the custodian. If you're institutional, what you really want to be able to do at the end of the day, thinking kind of slightly down the road, is you want to pick your biggest, best digital asset custodian, you want a direct market access solution to access whatever exchanges, whatever market makers you want. And you don't want to have to think about all the back end, you know, netting and settlement and all that stuff. Um, that is very, very, very hard to achieve. And I would argue you don't achieve it um, with legal agreements and promises to pay and delivery versus payment and people going first and having and all of these parties becoming credit intermediaries that have very small balance sheets. I just don't think those are scalable solutions. Rosario Ingargiola, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, Dominic.